Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to the first ever episode 210 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, we're coming to you live from London in the heart of Fintech, but today, not from Level 39. My 11FS colleagues, Simon Taylor, Jason Bates, and I have taken this show on the road. We're recording at the Rainmakers Summit in London, where they're not just telling companies they need to innovate, they're literally showing them how to do it. We've got some great guests for you today. Coming up, we have Liz Lumley, who is the Managing Director of Thought Leadership at Rainmaking. We've got Will Bentick, Head of Careers at the Makers Academy, and Natarius Liliolis, CEO and co-founder of Startup Bootcamp. In addition, we've got Jennifer Rosen, who is the founder and CEO of JNR Communications. Right, let's get into the show. Fantastic. So today uh, we've got a pretty awesome lineup in terms of people to talk to you. So uh, why don't we just start with a bit of a, a roundtable of who's here. So Liz, why don't you kick us off? Hi. Um, so I'm Liz Lumley and I am Managing Director of Thought Leadership at Rainmaking. Very cool. And I'm Jennifer Rosen and I have a media company, JNR Communications and production company, Full Tilt Productions. My name is Octavius Leolios. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Startup Bootcamp Fintech and InsureTech and I'm a partner in Rainmaking Innovation. Uh, hello, I'm Will Bentink. Uh, I am nominally Head of Careers at Makers Academy, which is Europe's leading coding bootcamp. Uh, I say nominally because I got to choose my job title and it was only me, so I called myself Head of the Department. Nice. There's now nine of us, I'm not really the Head of the Department. <laughs> but you were there first, so you're the Head. So well, no, technically I was there second. Um, but I took over from the guy who did it. And he's now, I think, well, he was director of growth. He's now COO. All of these are just things to write on a business card. They're not actually uh, descriptions of what we do. <laughs> Love it. It's very nice. So today we're, we're here at the Rainmaking Summit. So guys, tell us a little bit more about the summit. How's it gone? How's the, the reaction to the crowd? What you guys have been up to? Um, it's been really good. We had a full crowd from the morning, which made me very um, happy and less stressed. <laughs> the whole idea around this summit was, you know, you know me, David, I've been to tons of events. I've organized tons of events. Um, and sort of the structure of this event was kind of personally cathartic to me. Um, and I just thought there have been to so many events where uh, and conferences where people sleep in the back and people on stage are obviously there because they paid 50 grand to sponsor it and they say nothing or there are gurus that about buzzwords um, as say nothing. Um, and I really wanted an event where people would had sort of really deep learning and, and were passionate about the topics. Um, and so what we did is we had 90 minute sessions where the first half was either a presentation or a panel, and then the second half was an interactive workshop. And we really wanted, because I thought the workshops really keep people, if someone does say something interesting on stage, 
at a regular event, you just sort of leave and forget about it. But if you go deep dive into the workshop, then you learn something. Mm -hmm. So I wanted people to come here and network, and I wanted people to learn something. And I'm hoping, based on some of the word of mouth feedback, is that that did happen. So so who's in the audience and, and why did they come here? What's the, the outcome that they're looking for? You know, the origins of our company were around Startup Bootcamp. And there's a strong entrepreneurial um, uh, flavor it, to the whole company. It was founded by entrepreneurs. Um, they love uh, small businesses and, 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 and founder companies. But through, through Startup Bootcamp, we work a lot with corporates, with big, large, complex organizations. And Startup Bootcamp FinTech, for example, works with you know, some of the largest banks, Lloyd's Banking Group, Rabobank, and Tessa Sampalo. And through working with them, we saw that there was this need for how these large complex organizations can work with the startups that come into Startup Bootcamp. We ran an event at the Rainmaking Loft a few months ago, um, and a woman from one of our partner companies, she said, I'm here because I get told all the time, you need to work with startups, and then no one tells me how. Um, and I'm like, you're the person that should be in this event. And that, so it wasn't a startup event. It was aimed at the corporates, not in a condescending way, not in a castigating way. Like, aren't you idiots for not working with startups? Because we meet people from corporates all the time and say, we want to know how to do this. We just, there are barriers in our, in, you know, in our, in our company. There is, you know, can you help us with tools and strategies and procedures? And that's really the audience that we wanted in the room. If, if we wanted to put another word to this, this was all about straight talk. And one of the things we've learned over the last years by talking to these large organizations is nobody actually talks to industry in a very plain but kind of real way. Uh, so when people go, oh, I need to talk, work with startups, the question is, do you actually understand what you need? Do you actually understand the value that different startups at different stages will give you? And are you prepared for that? So a lot of it was revolving around that. And it was interesting also because you asked a question about the audience, right? Somebody asked me, did you have somebody that was super happy about seeing? And I, I sort of had to think about this and said, no, actually what I was really happy about is that I didn't see the usual suspects in the audience. So I didn't see the conference tourists that just go there because they have to tick a box or because it's PR or because they're looking for business opportunities, but genuinely people from across industries, this was not a fintech event, right? Uh, that, that were just asking very, some naive questions, but in the best possible sense. Mm. So people, we had a board member of a, of, of a bank in, in, in the Mediterranean who dedicated a day because he'd never been exposed to this. And I thought, this is, this is, and, and, and we had a chat and, and he said, look, this was eye-opening. So that's, that's the kind of thing. If we manage to get a little bit of an eye-opening moment with everybody in the room, varying degrees of kind of preparedness, that's amazing. That makes my heart swell. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, we've heard from a few people, and indeed clients of ours, that we seem to have moved through that period of break the banks, take them down. You know, we're a startup, we're here to sort of take them on through to a very much more collaborative space. But equally, especially with banks bringing startups in, especially through procurement and through that kind of due diligence that they expect with their previous suppliers seems almost impossible. It could take six months, it could take a year. I've spoken to startups that have been in a procurement cycle for two years. How do you see that evolving with a large corporation which has to balance that safety and confidence in its suppliers with the ability to work with something that's only been around for six months. I want Nectarius to offer I can't believe two years? <laughs> yeah. Did they kill the startup? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a sore point um, for, for many reasons. When we talk about this, this world, we, we actually try to get people to understand that there's a huge gap between the innovation appetite 
and innovation capability, right? And some of what we did today was help people understand about what they need to do to build capability. But it's still, even, even after all these years, it's still very early, right? So having a procurement partner that allows startups to come on board, great. Having compliance that gets it, having a legal team that gets it, all that, fantastic. But most organizations still don't know what to do with a startup once it's gone through that process. And this is really where the big frustration comes in. So we have an evolution of the discourse. We have more lucid people in the organizations and we have increasing their mentality of experimentation. But there's still so many gaps in the whole thing. And it goes back to, you are a large organization, you have constraints, you need to change certain things. Do you understand what you actually want to achieve? And do you understand how much of this you can control and how much of this needs to be experimentation? So we had a session this morning. My, my session was about the evolution of the accelerator model. Right? It was called, the accelerator is dead, long live the accelerator. <laughs> um, so as you see, there's a very morbid theme running through the event with, with the coffin. You live with and, life, though. You live with plants. <laughs> we we birth, right? Yes. That's it. Um, and, and asking in the room how many of the people in the room have their own accelerator and there's quite a few people who raise their hands and you go, but do you actually, are you running the accelerator and do you work for the organization? And they say, yes. And you go, why are you doing this? Do you actually have any clear understanding about what you're going to get out of this? It's amazing when you ask innovation people how they measure success with their initiatives. And usually you get a prefab answer that is pre-approved by corporate comms and has no meaning whatsoever. Mariano Belinki at a conference, he was on stage with three other people and they were talking about corporate venture and all that. And, and I asked that question deliberately and, and three answers were what you'd expected. And he looks at me straight in the eye and goes, we don't know. And you go, finally. And that's okay not to know, right? Ma Mariano being brutally honest. Like, I, yeah, like, really? <laughs> that's, that's his thing, like trademark. Right? There's something to be said about going into something and not knowing what you're going to get out of it, but knowing you have to do it anyway, that is terrifying. And actually, that, um, that humility and yet confidence to continue to do it is, is something that's really counterintuitive in its nature. Like, I'm going to do this thing. I know I need to do it. I'm going to have the confidence to do it, but I don't know if I'm going to get anything out of it. Hey, board, do you agree this is a good thing? No, I want some numbers and I want some metrics and I want, so especially larger organizations, they immediately try and start to say, well, measure it this way and measure it that way. And then, of course, they start trying to measure it that way and they don't hit that number. So then they're changing it all the time and then they can't give a consistent answer externally. Do I hear some pain, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> But I guess that I guess that feeds, in, that feeds into the the culture clash that I guess you'd expect. You know, of people who have been through a corporate uh, education, have been through a corporate career, and who want things that are predictable. There's a plan. There's efficiency. Some strategic vision and plan as to how to get there. Um, not uh, and indeed to protect the brand at all costs. Mm. Uh, which I, I find, you know, with clients that we talk to, very interesting. This we want to experiment, but we but the brand can never be put at risk. Yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but you have to guarantee what you're doing won't fail. Yeah. Is there a question, I suppose, around uh, around authenticity? I just it suddenly occurred to me. I watched a BBC documentary recently about hipsters, and that the whole point about hipsters is all about authenticity. And now it's here I am talking about beards, authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is sort of some weird kind of like meta thing going yeah. on. Yeah. Hipsters are also all about irony. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, this sort of authenticity, and and I know that uh, working for a 
a brand which was a startup and maybe sort of still is and might be something else soon. We're very keen on the idea that like, we, we open to the world to say we get stuff wrong and, and we get stuff wrong on purpose. Because if we're not getting stuff wrong, then we're not finding the limitations of, of what it is that we can do and what it is that we should be doing. And I, I think there was the, the, the panel this afternoon, there was a brief sort of question around the idea of oh, what, what's failure? You know, and there were some corporate people on stage and there were some startup people on stage and everyone got a bit prickly. And we kind of, I kind of went, do, do we have time to talk about failure? <laughs> and uh, the MC's uh, answer was, I believe that's another panel. <laughs> that's another conference. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, that this, this idea of failure, and so I, I, the, the reason why I'm saying this is that yesterday I was interviewing a candidate for a role that we have open at the moment uh, who has a corporate background. And I, we were kind of, you know, why do you want to work here? All that sort of stuff. And he said, I just want to be allowed to fail. Wow. There's something to be said for that culture of failure being okay. And it, I saw an article many years ago that said um, you know, the thing now in, in Burning Man is that Silicon Valley types go there and they, the first thing they tell you about is their failures. There's a pride in their failures and how much they learn from them. Like they wear that as a badge of honor, not as something that you, know, you should be really Victorian about and try and hide. But this corporate culture has this Victorian thing. On, on last week's podcast, we were talking about the, you know, when somebody gets cyber attacked and they, you know, they keep this very sort of staid, um, played like, you know, we, we didn't make any mistakes. Nothing went bad here. The, the, these nothing aren't the droids. Yeah. yeah, nothing to see. <laughs> but actually, I was at an event, um, the Into the Future conference yesterday um, that the ECB did. And they had a guy, um, the head director of cybersecurity research center, I think it was. Super interesting point he made. There's actually an EU law coming out that says you're going to have to fully disclose everything that happens in your cyber attacks. So why not just be on, honest anyway? Like, why not just be open anyway? If that's going to be more authentic, that's going to suit your brand. People are going to trust you more. And you're going to get legislated to do it anyway. Like... Hey guys, here's an idea. Be authentic. I want to pick up on something that you said there, which is the idea of a culture where failure is okay. Mm -hmm. Failure isn't okay. Failing well, that's the thing that, that works, right? That, that you can you can win well and you can win badly. Like if you oh look, we succeeded, but we have no idea why. <laughs> but also like we failed, but we have no idea why. That like like but that's failure. That's that, that's really gonna and I think that it's not about trying to create a culture where failure is acceptable. It's where being wrong is okay. You know, I made a mistake, I got it wrong, I did I you know, I tried a thing and it didn't work and it's okay. Uh, what we're trying to instill in people is that we need to move from ROI to R and D. And in my world, is a financial industry, right? And R&D implies failure, implies experimentation, and just keep trying, keep trying until it works, mm -hmm. right? And having been in the financial industry for nearly 20 years now, we don't have that. There is no concept of building product or doing anything with an R&D mentality, whereas any other industry has that. So how do you get people who look at innovation with an ROI mentality and look at it and expect some returns that they can measure and predict? Yeah. It's just not going to work. And that's where the frustration comes in. But I guess, um, you know, to put myself in, a, in the position of a large bank, they'll turn around and say, well, that's all very well, but you don't have 15 million customers whose money goes into the account day in, day out. And the R&D is great for, you know, social networks and pictures of cats. But when it's my salary, I don't want to put it into an R&D bank. And the pharma industry, the health industry. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, Literally, you would kill you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 We had um, 
Sir Mark Walpole on the show. Um, I think it was last Friday was the episode. That's uh, like a name drop of all name drops right there. Oh, I'm just going to point that out. So. It wasn't intentional. He was actually on the show. Yeah, uh, but he's the UK government's chief scientific advisor and he comes from a medicine background and he was saying trying to instill that in many industries is hard trying to tell that to a room full of finance people he feels like you know is, is extra hard because there is like a cultural thing of if i can see it on a spreadsheet whether it's true or not i believe it and it's getting away from that so some of you will know particularly listeners uh that there is a thing in software development called continuous integration which is this idea that you have a layer between the stuff that you've done and the real world which is a kind of automated process that evaluates, is the thing that you've done appropriate for the real world? Mm. And this is based on the idea of, well, I've written the suite of tests, which mm. if I change something over here, I know that if it's broken something over there, because that test stops running. Now, I'm really interested, and, and there's a little bit of doing this at Makers Academy, we're trying to create something like this, where you have a business that essentially runs in a test-driven development, continuous integration kind of a way. How is it that I can do all this like crazy mad stuff that's all like R&D and innovation and wow, and then it actually kind of gets to the buffer where it hits yeah. the real world, and does it is it contigu contagious with How all do you not the break stuff life? I think that's, that's the thing. Yeah? Such a good point. Uh, and, it's a, and a good example would be, um, you know, Facebook have an internal Facebook build. So the fact there are all kinds of things that they've tried with Facebook employees that when they leave the building and have to go outside, they log out of their internal build and into, into the external build. But the ability to have this whole population of people testing and trying some slightly crazy things that isn't released is a really interesting idea around the, you know, the bleeding edge uh, branch with the, you know, the, the thing that actually more people can use, eventually making it into the mass market. But, but yet we've spoken to a lot of banks and have met no one who has an internal bank build where they're testing, you know, the, the, some new features that might eventually make it into the uh, the real world. But, but I, I think it comes to your point, doesn't it? Like product is not a thing in banks. Like product is a current account. It's not the service in which you're actually delivering these experiences around. And we, you know, we talk about the, the difference between sort of legacy analog products and, and digital services. And I think the more people can deliver things in a digital service and a group of people own the, you know, cradle to grave is uh, the uh, not wanting to go in the macabre theme in terms of where you guys have been going today. But, you know, the cradle to grave ownership of that service and the continuous, ev ev you know, evolution of that, then I think that's when we think they really get it. Is that more of a cultural problem? You know, like we're seeing IT generally being used as like the, the excuse for doing these things, but are most of them cultural? I think they're largely cultural, definitely. Because also, a lot of it is what you define to be success. So if you're in a large institution, you have this buffer where you can kind of hide the fact that actually a lot of craziness and chaos is happening, and that the gestation period to actually producing something is way longer than if you formed a relationship with a startup. But what they're going through is far more transparent. So part of that is culture, and part of that is really what we worked on in our session earlier, which is around narrative. And when you're talking about authenticity, part of that authenticity is being able to tell the story, particularly the senior leadership, and get that buy-in within large institutions, that being able to have a culture in which people feel safe to take risks and, as a result, produce something that's truly innovative is okay. And that the reason why you can build that culture is through saying, we're going to support you and having consistency and trust. You know, those are the foundational things to be able to foster that. 
And the reality is a lot of these organizations don't give an environment in which they feel that they have that trust in their demographic and as a result can kind of support them through that process. If the environment's missing, is it because there's a lot of people that don't know these techniques exist? So continuous integration, they don't know that's a thing. The risk-taking in an R&D sense or a sense like medicine they don't know that that can be done. Is there a knowledge gap? And is that what you're trying to close a little bit? I don't know. I mean, I think kind of like bastardizing the the medium is the message. Like in banks, they kind of look at the product is the bank. So they have a mortgage product, which if I don't think any bank should sell a mortgage to a 20-year-old in London, but a bank should offer something that allows someone to own their own home but they can't see around, that needs to be probably a completely different product. And they can't separate the bank services from the product. Well, that's that's the thing. The you know We talk about this a lot, the digital distribution. Mm. You know, actually digital and digital banking have merely become a distribution channel for most people in terms of what they're doing. So the digital capability that could augment what their products actually are, you know, the products hasn't changed for 200, 300 years, quite mm. frankly, in terms of what's there. Mm. It's the same, you yeah. know, current account slash mortgages set up. So, um, but yeah, that's what needs to evolve. It's like, how do you make I mean, better yeah, products? If you not look at like, you know, you a, a bank, like a, you, met, you mentioned, you know, 300 years, a bank that takes deposits and makes loans. Mm. But it, the banks don't look at themselves as we're the financial services platform for your life. No, mm. they take deposits and they make loans. That's a bank. Yep. And that, that stops the R&D from happening. Agree. I, I have a slightly more polemic perspective on this. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's as simple as that. People in these organizations are not incentivized enough to care at any level. So you get the people with the, with the fire and the spark and the desire to drive, and they hit a wall when they go up. And you've got the C-level people who might get it, but then they, for some reason, do not care enough to build an infrastructure that can push it down. Yeah. So it stops at the senior management, it stops at middle management, or wherever it is, even if there is an incentive to do innovation, I do inverted commas, uh, where you realize that the moment there's a conflict, of course, BAU comes first and then it falls off the table. And nothing will ever change. And when you talk to the people and you corner them and you tell them what's the alternative, they just shrug. And reality is there is no alternative. You have to do this at some point. And if you don't, then we have to start talking about about all the other brand moments. Uh, it's easy to say the banks will stop existing and just throw Kodak and Nokia, etc. But it's not about that. It's about real the real need for culture change that just doesn't happen. But is this, you know, there, therefore we see the symptoms of innovation. We see people making very big announcements about how much money they're spending. We don't necessarily see <laughs> significant changes in terms of kind of what's happening. So, but it, I think that's that's the problem, right? I think we we see good marketing, but we want to see change. It depends on what you're trying to maximize. So I think, as you know, these are probably huge generalizations, but like larger organizations. We love huge generalizations. Good, awesome, huge generalizations. <laughs> the, the larger an organization, the more they are trying to maximize for shareholder value profit, right? Sure. And the smaller an organization, particularly nowadays, the more they're trying to maximize for something that they believe in. Uh, and I think that if there's, if, if we're not just talking about how much money are we making, we're talking about, well, what are we, like, why and, and impact and, and those sorts of questions, then I think that the motivation to innovate 
is is then sort of baked into the fabric of the company. Mm. But the question then comes back to, is it the sort of fabric that you can now bake into an existing company that never really had a reason for doing things other than just making the money? Or do you have to build it from scratch? Or is there like a, a little nugget inside that company that you can then say, oh, this is the special thing where all the special stuff is happening. Mm. And, and those corporate innovation departments, as you mentioned before, where this idea that how are you measuring innovation is... There's quite a broad spectrum of answers to that. Thankfully, there are some people saying, I don't know. That if there is some sense in which innovation is not there to maximize profit, but is there to maximize something else, which might be the values of that organization, or it might be the impact that they're having or the change that they want to see in the world, other than just we make more money, then that, and I, I don't know, have any of those questions been answered for you today? So one of the things that frustrates me most is that most organizations, even the most lucid ones, look at this and go, but we've got our fund and we've got the other thing and that box is ticked and therefore innovation has been taken care of, right? Innovation done it. Right, rather <laughs> than... Innovation isn't a box you take, no, it's something you not. are. It's something that, first of all, you need a portfolio, right? Multiple things at the same time. Some will work, some won't. Some won't work because the timing was off or something else was off. You revisit that, right? And that portfolio approach, completely missing, right? So where do you start? There's also something there, something hidden, an assumption that innovation is a is a value add, a kind of nice yes. to have. Mm-hmm. We're a great business. We're super profitable. Customers aren't leaving us in droves. Um, you know, innovation. It's just this nice thing we can we can add on. It's PR. Exactly. Yeah. Where you know, I think of it very differently. That the world is changing. Society is changing. You know, the, the whole digital smartphone driven world is moving that way. And this is a this isn't. You know, innovation is almost the wrong word. It's it's realignment. It's actually it's trying to find the business model that keeps you aligned with the change that's happening externally. Yeah. But I don't think it's often used in that way. It's almost the the layer on top that we can add on because hey, you know, it's we, innovation we, rather yeah, than yeah. we're you know the world has changed. We're a service for a different era. Mm. How do we how do we realign? We, we we talk a lot in the office that we actually want to ban the word innovation. Because <laughs> because it just gets used too much, you know, and and um, it's funny, you know, we gave away little plants, um, and someone said, "Oh, you've got to water it and look at it." And I'm like, "Yes, yes, it takes work. <laughs> it's not magic. It's like, and it's sad that innovation has become a buzzword. Um, but yeah, a lot of people do think it's open the doors, startups come in, and magic will happen. Damn, so that, damn and you and your lessons. But but one <laughs> one of the things actually that you guys have been doing today that was super super interesting was actually kind of putting some of these buzzwords sort of to bed. So like actually <laughs> I did a... say disruption though in my panel and the guys <laughs> called me on it. So, <laughs> so what what were the you know, this sounds like a almost like a room one oh one for for kind of bureaucracy buzzwords and bullshit. So what what buzzwords made it into So the uh, reason the... we did that we did some customer feedback on our partners and one of the things we heard is we don't want gurus, we don't want people telling us we're idiots. We want really plain, simple language about how how do we do these things. Um, and and you know we even in our own talk, we, in our own speech, we use jargon, we use these buzzwords. Um, so throughout the day, throughout the workshops, we asked people to write down things that were blocking them uh, in their corporate life or even their personal life, and we were going to bury it. Um, and so the most common themes that came up were internal politics. It, it was um, uh, middle management zombies. I do say I think all zombies should be buried. <laughs> um, there was a lot of you know hype and and buzzwords were were, were put in it, put in as well. But I think that sort of culture and politics come up a lot 
um, you know, where, where you, I, I, my, my old job, I tried to do an event which had a hackathon alongside it. And, and the chairman got involved and said, no, you haven't done this before. We're not doing it. This company, I said, I'm going to do an event with three streams running at the same time. And they went, okay. <laughs> so it's kind of like that difference. And when you work in an organization that's like, no, it's very different from working in an organization. It's like, well, go ahead, try it, see if it works. No, the, the great philosophers, Petro Boys, have a song called This Used to Be the Future. Um, and it's interesting because we all had an idea what our future is and suddenly we're facing something that is very different from that, which is this constantly evolving, uncertain uh, thing that has very different demands on us. In all my corporate life, I had business roles where it was really difficult to get to talk to the really senior people. Now, where we're on the other side with Rainmaker and Sada Bootcamp, they come to us. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful because you get, you get an hour with the, with the CEO of a bank, right? And my favorite thing is to ask them, what keeps you awake at night? And every time you can predict it is culture change. So no matter how much you talk about innovation or realignment or any other word you want to use, there's a recognition that the world is evolving, the way people want to work is evolving, the way people want to be engaged is evolving on both sides, on the employee side and on the consumer side. And very little is happening to do that because it's still happening in a very linear way. So one of the things that we enjoy doing is when we talk about Startup Bootcamp is we try to get people to understand on the corporate side that this is not, the accelerator is not about you finding the next big thing. It's about using this as a tool to excite and motivate your people because they will talk to startups and they will get that little spark kicking off, right? And the interesting thing though is that if you talk about this and the big thinkers of this world have moved on not to talk about innovation but about all the organizational changes and culture, but very little results in actual action. And I'm still trying to get my head around this. Uh, I totally agree. I mean, that when, when banks come to talk, talk to us, we talk to them about second-order change because they're, they're traditionally used to the first-order change of we're at point A, McKinsey have come and worked with us, we know we need to be at point B, so how are we going to make that happen across the organization? We have our PowerPoint. From we have our PowerPoint, and now we're going to bring in you know, a large consultancy and we'll, we'll make it happen. But that's, that's first-order change. And unfortunately, there's no like, first-order change you can put in now. It's second-order change. It's changing how you do change. It's the fact that because the point B is constantly moving, it's not sheep-dipping the organization to make it, you know, to, to suddenly recast it at point B. It's making it so that it can handle point B, point C, point D, point E. And now that is super scary because that's, that's not... That's a change outside of the world of change management and the sort of traditional big world that, that anyone's been used to. It's, it's creating a different type of organization. But are we not in a situation, though, where it's only stick? You know, what's, what's the carrot here? You know, if I'm, a, if I'm a CEO of a very large organization, we're on top of the world and I've got 15 million customers, then, like, why do you want to change, right? What's the, what's the alternative? The opening up of APIs, losing control of what we're doing, losing control of the customers in terms of where we're doing it. So for, I guess for the big banks in the scenario that we're at at the moment is that we're only sort of, we're on the downward cycle, really. You know, and actually all of it is, is, is change here. This is a, a loss of control for them. It's a loss of something that they understand. It's a different way of making money. It's a, so this is all pretty hard stuff, isn't it? The, and I think the, the hard thing about innovation is that people just see it like a, a magic word to become relevant. Uh, and I think it, it clearly goes a lot deeper than that in terms of kind of what, where we need to go. Yeah. Well, I think also, though, a lot of people who are in those positions who are CEOs are not 
people who really have their finger on the pulse of the trends that are happening. Yeah. So their their job is to maintain the organization, return value. That's that's their job. Yeah. So part of it is changing the framework of in terms of incentivizing and what you expect from these CEOs and senior leaders to deliver because they're supposed to keep shareholders excited about the future but not fearful that massive fluctuation is going to be happening. Sure. So I think the expectation of shareholders has to change in order to support that innovative culture. But also on top of it, they need to accept the fact that they're actually not really the thought leaders on the state of the future. That's a really interesting sentence. The expectation of shareholders has to change. Shareholders are looking at banks, looking for dividends primarily. Give me great dividends. I know you're in a low interest rate environment, therefore cut your costs. So this is what CEOs are being forced to deliver constantly. And it's probably what's keeping them up at night because Schroeder's or PIMCO or somebody's going to, about to downgrade them or about to sell a load of shares. That's going to hurt the share price. And there goes their bonus and all of their management team's bonus and therefore the you know, company performance. So what story should they be telling shareholders if they're not telling them about cost? Well, I think that that's one of the aspects of insight that they can really get from startups and accelerators is really looking at the trends that are happening and what are the projections for the future. And that's really across sectors. So how does banking intersect with all industries to be able to um, stay ahead of the curve? And obviously, we have so many phenomenal examples throughout history in the business world of people not doing that and as a result being left in the dust. So it shouldn't be a new concept to them. But I think part of that story is, first of all, doing the foundational thing of building trust and instilling trust by showing them these are the trends, this is what's going to be happening, and we need to do this because there's one of two options, which is change is happening. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So we can either become a truly innovative company or we can suffer the consequences of not doing that. So is it about, instead of being reactive to events, reactive to legislation, reactive to, oh, the cybersecurity thing happened, reactive to all of that, um, reactive to needing to cost cut and, and this sort of thing, is it about being proactive and then starting to be able to say, well, here's my growth story. My growth story is I'm going to launch new business models in these markets for these reasons. And like, it feels to me like banking's missing that growth story. And, and startup culture is all about growth. So can, how do you infect yourself with that? But I guess that's the point. If you've got all the customers currently and you're not innovating around your business models to move things forward, then there is no growth story. And actually the argument <coughs> is that unless you change those business models and start to look for new areas of opportunity to start making revenue, then it's all negative, isn't it? You're not going to grow your current account business, so you need new business models. Exactly. Leave the earth because it's doomed. <laughs> well, and I think also banking has one of the best cases for transformation from a cultural standpoint beyond the financial aspect of it. Like you have a really rich story in the financial sector to change the narrative and create this ethos in which you're really trying to contribute to the world through this infrastructure that's been created around banking. So the sky is really the limit with financial services. It's just people aren't tapping into that. What, what about though the, um, I guess culture is made by people, right? So there's no change here that's maybe more needed than the people who are working at the organizations in themselves. So, you know, the idea of the, the kind of uh, merry-go-round of who's in charge of, of who's most senior in terms of doing things, that, that sounds like a completely logical <coughs> approach if 
you go on the basis of who's best to lead the program or the project or who, who's got the greatest experience or insights to make that happen. Um, like, can you imagine trying to put that like, hey, director of transactional banking, uh, you're now the junior UX person because, <laughs> hey, there's somebody way more senior in this yeah, bit. Too. I, I think there's... <clears throat> I'm, I'm talking because it gives me an excuse to cough without interrupting people. Um, I think there's, there's a thing that came up in the, in the panel that I was on, which was uh, the sense of belonging. And that if you're on a team where you feel like you belong on that team and you feel part of that team, you're going to contribute more than if you didn't. Right? And then that's all fairly sort of common sense. I hope that the way that we work is that we trust the idea that the individual wants to contribute to the organization and wants to contribute to the growth of the organization and the success of the organization. That, that is absolutely supported by the idea that I belong in this tribe, group, whatever word you want to use. And the reason why your senior on this and your junior on that is okay is because your seniority is not a measure of how much you're valued. But this idea of, ah, I made a mistake, that's cool, it's okay, like, you know, we're not going to have a go at you, we're going to work out how we're going to fix it together, um, then it's okay if I'm senior over here and I'm junior over here because my value isn't tied to my seniority, my value isn't tied to my salary, my value is tied to how much I'm contributing and whether, and this is the thing, that we have this um, rule, uh, rule is the wrong word, we have a, a, a thing at Makers Academy that we strive to achieve, which is you are individually empowered but also individually responsible to contribute the most value to the organization that you can. But it's you who chooses what value you contribute and how you do it. And so we're overall trying to increase the value that everyone's adding, but we're giving the decision of how they do that to the individual themselves, trusting that they want to and they want to do their best. And so me being senior over here and me being junior over here, that's my decision because I have decided that me being senior over here mm. is the best way I can add value and me being junior over here is the best way I can add value. But, but that's, and that's almost tied into this, this thing I see around uh, there being the kind of traditional turn of the industrial revolution, you're, part, you're a cog in our factory and I don't really trust you so therefore, I have to police you, I have to control, and, and part of your movement through the organization is a reward for doing what you're told, until the point where you have to tell other people, and then it gets a bit difficult because you've never really learned how to do that. So there's transition points. Compared to actually modern organizations where a lot of that flips, where it is power to the edge, you know, it is actually trying to, to bring people in, provide them with the trust and support in order to do, you know, amazing work because you believe that people love autonomy, mastery and purpose and all of that good stuff. And therefore, you're putting them in, in the position to do that. Mm. And I think you do see diff those almost two types of organization, the, you know, the factory organization, come and work for me, it's a job, you know, and then the, the organization where it is a, a, a group of super highly engaged individuals that are trusted to do what they want to do and i'm interested in, in how that works in the in the transition world in the in the move well to, to that point i guess there's going to be a lot of people from banks listening to this who are like just tell us what to do so <laughs> yes. you know like make make it go away give so, us a powerpoint exactly yeah. um but so so you know what's what's the advice right how do we how do we make this happen in banks because well you know it was change. interesting on, on the panel that we did in the morning that taris was on he asked you know who was in the audience and he he asked you know who who's from the innovation department and a whole bunch of people and, and who's not um, and that I really, and I think this ties into um, you know Jennifer's uh, panel on communication. I, I think that you should really, you really need to talk to the people not in the innovation department. 
um, the people who don't feel like the cool kids. And, and because sometimes they do have deep sector knowledge that you can use and need and bring, bring them into the conversation. And I think that, that just, it raises, I think the more diversity in the world and in your group raises the bar for the conversation and discussions that you're having. When, when, when I started in this world, innovation people were the door into the organization to, to do change. Uh, now where we are at innovation 3.0, whatever, uh, we're at a point where innovation people sometimes are the obstacles. Because they've sold a strategy or something, and then you come and tell them, you know what? You might have got something wrong. Maybe let's revisit this. You go, no, 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 no. Because it took me years to sell this to the C-suite, and now we're sticking to this. Oh, the irony. It's, it's amazing. It's wonderful and frustrating at the same time. But it, it is usually where a lot of these initiatives fail is because of the lack of business buying. Mm -hmm. So if there is somebody who's listening to this and goes, okay, I'm in the back office or I have product responsibility or something, but a business person, it's their responsibility to actually find a way to do this within the organization, mm -hmm. not to rely on innovation for Assume responsibility for something, maybe take a little risk and actually put yourself out there. And you know what? If your organization doesn't recognize the risk and if your failure results in you being reprimanded or losing your job, <coughs> it's easy for me to say, but that's not the right organization for you to work in if you really want to make a change. Change is successful when uh, you put all the kids in the show. Like when somebody, when everyone's involved and feels a part of the change, change is successful. There are things that you do when things are successful and things that you don't do and you're not successful. And I think engaging the depths of the organization is, is absolutely critical. And I see cultural things like a head of digital, a head of innovation is very, very different to what you'd see at a startup where everybody has to be digitally savvy. Everybody has to be aware of innovation. So actually, you know, whilst there are some great people in those roles trying to do amazing things in banks, like don't get me wrong, if you're listening guys, I know you're trying to do well. But at the same time, the fact that that role exists says that culturally in the organization, like the other people aren't feeling empowered enough. Mm -hmm. so, so is there a way, you know, what, what can senior leaders do to start to make people feel empowered? I, I don't put the innovation department in a separate building far away. You know, and then and don't invite you know, and then not invite everyone else from the bank into that group. But the garage has to look cool with beanbags and posters. I know, and I know, and you can write gonna, on the walls. We're going to break down this culture by creating another one, and yes. separating it from everybody and making it the cool gang. But, but I guess it's that tension of, in some ways, protecting this new flower, this new shoot from the oppressive nature of the the organizational immune system that's designed to squash that innovation. So I guess there's an interesting paradox there of in one on one side it being useful to have the skunk works to have the old shed where people are creating new things but on the other hand the separation while it might help them come up with with new organizational paradigms or new ways of doing business um, in other ways uh, harms the the dispersion of that innovation through the organization well i was just going to say that i think uh, in terms of leadership listening to this, that really your role is to not get in people's way and to empower them and to enable them to do what they do best and to maybe delve in and spend some time kind of wrestling with your control issues and your fear mm -hmm. because that is often what's blocking it and you have to model behavior. It's not good enough to just spout that you really believe in this concept. You have to walk the walk and part of that is really listening, you know, mm -hmm. akin to what you were saying, like really listening to what people need and not to kind of instigate some mass revolution, but there is power in numbers. You know, there's all these different initiatives in corporations of 
you know, women's groups, diversity groups, you know, mentoring groups, etc. I think there need to be more groups of people getting together and saying, we really believe in this. We want this change. We want to go to work every day and really believe in what we're doing. We don't want to be stifled um, from achieving things we want. And you need to mobilize a number and be able to then have this collective voice to, to transform. So a couple of years ago, I saw on the tube an advert with uh, a man with his shirt untucked and his tie undone and his hair all a mess and his wide eyes and he's holding onto a laptop and it's got a bit of smoke coming out of it. And it said, only computers are allowed to crash. <laughs> and I went, no, that's precisely the wrong way around. Humans are the ones that are allowed to crash. You know, the automated systems, the computers, those are the ones that are supposed to be kind of error-free and, and, and carry on. And this idea that, that we continue to treat people in a company like pieces of a machine rather than treat them like human beings. And we've got this amazing thing where, like, so my advice to people if they want to change anything is lose the ego. Like, get rid of, like, it doesn't matter if you're the best. It doesn't, individually, it doesn't matter if you're better than other people. It doesn't matter if you made a mistake. None of these things matter. What matters is that you, together you're trying to achieve something and you go, are we achieving it or are we not? Like, how well are we doing on the thing that we're trying to achieve? And if we can get rid of the ego and we can move towards treating people like human beings rather than pieces of a machine, then that, and, and, and also recognize that, like, it's not your responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. And, and to rally people around the idea, it's not one person going in and changing stuff. It's everybody getting together and doing it. Oh, God, that sounds so happy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> to, to your question about what, what, what does somebody do who is listening to this wanting to, to do something, there is also a different perspective to this, uh, which is leave the bank and do it yourself. And I'm serious, right? Because what people, usually when people talk about startups in our world, in the fintech world, they still have this naive assumption that it's a 20-year-old dude in, in sneakers and t-shirts. And don't get me wrong, there's value in sneakers, it's well documented. <laughs> but uh, joking aside, um, the average age of our cohort in our FinTech or InsurTech programs is 38. Most of the people we see are people who've worked in the industry, have seen something that doesn't work and actually know the right way to do this. They might lack the entrepreneurial skills, but they definitely have, they know the problem that they're looking to solve. Where are we in the, the hype cycle of the startup world? You know, it's almost become an industry in terms of, you know, leave your job, do a startup, drink coffee in, in Shoreditch and, Man you know, and create the next, the next big thing. I've watched Silicon Valley, seems like the, uh, the job for me. Yeah. You know, are there people who are attracted to the, the romance Oh, yeah, all of, the time. They come up to you at conferences and they're like, hey. <laughs> I think there's, there's, a, there's this, like, the thing on a job description where it says, you know, we're something, something, something with a startup feel. So you're not a startup, but you're a startup field. What do you mean by startup field? Do you mean ping pong table? Do you mean beer fridge? Do you mean no bosses? Like what's, what's your particular version of startup field? And I think this concentration of uh, uh, the focus on this idea of being more like startups is ridiculous. What you want to be more, is more reflexive. But, but this idea of, of make the smallest change, yeah. work out whether it was the right thing, like reflect on what you've achieved, reflect on what you've done. Don't reflect on it a year later, reflect on it right now, in the moment, as you're going, keep going, reflecting, reflecting, reflecting. Mm -hmm. And that's where agile comes from, that's where extreme programming comes from, that's where flat structures, teal, and all of these things come from a reflexive behavior, this idea of, is it okay, the thing that I'm doing? And that's like yourself as well, like being reflexive about your own learning, all of these things, and you focus on 
Right now, is this the right thing to do? Right now. Optimizing. But, it, but I guess it's, again, a bit like innovation, that people get stuck with the artifact, the dogma, the doctrine, the I'll look a certain way, I'll have a ping-pong table. Hey, we're a startup, guys. We had a, a meeting for 10 minutes this morning. Like We're agile. But it's, it's too easy to get into that mistaking the artifact for... For, 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 in the end, something that isn't romantic at all. It's like hard focus on delivering a business objective. You know, the hardest than probably any corporate um, in the end, if it's done right. Uh, and uh, and, and that, that, for me, seems, yeah. seems I'm interested in you guys, is that it's like, it seems like one of these common misconceptions of, you know, what life in a startup will be like. It's like hard they've got the work. symptoms, but not the bug. It's hard work. And you give up your life. And that's why you can't do this on the side. You have to leave your job. You have to focus. You have to iterate. You have to do the permanent reflection. You have to find people to do this with. A lot of the corporate people that come to us go, I've got this great idea. Where can I hire a tech team? You don't hire a tech team. You inspire a co-founder. It's all these things, right? But it's, it's not easy, right? And we've seen people come to us and we've sent them away and said, you know what? You've spent a hundred, I don't know. There was a guy who remortgaged his house to be able to do this interesting thing by outsourcing the dev by himself and said, look, you either accept that you've burned all the money and that's the end of it. Or you go back, you do some thinking and you come back once you've got a tech co-founder and a different perspective. A year later, he comes back. He found a co-founder on founderdating.com. They were like chalk and cheese. It was unbelievable. But guess what? When they told the story about how they got together, you could hear the violence in the background. They made it into our program and they were the first team to raise money at the end of the program. Mm -hmm. So these things work if you do it the right way, but you need to be prepared to drop all the attitude, drop all your assumptions and, and just work your ass off. Tony, the, the most common question I got asked in 2015 was how do I find a technical co-founder? Mm -hmm. The most common question I got asked in 2016 was how do I insource my outsourced tech? <laughs> because they couldn't find a technical co-founder, so they paid for someone to do it in India, and it kind of worked, and now they're making some money, and they want to insource the tech. And they're like, can we hire one of your people from Makers Academy? <laughs> like, they've been doing it for 12 weeks, and you want them to manage the insourcing of your outsourced tech? I'm, you're, that's ambitious. <laughs> I admire your ambition. Which, by the way, I should, I should do a plug. Uh, for those people who want to uh, bring innovation into their organization, they should hire Makers Academy developers because we train it into them. Sounds good. I think also along those lines, it's kind of getting down to what is the motivation for wanting to join a startup and really basic human needs and psychology. And that's something that corporates can really leverage if they take the time to truly understand it. And, you know, part of that is the excitement of having autonomy to create something. I mean, your work is your life. If you chronicle the amount of time it took to get to where you are professionally in your career, the amount of time you invest in your career, you better be doing something that you care about. If you aren't, you're wasting your life. Mm. I mean, that's just a fact. I think the, the challenge on that, though, is, and, I, and I've, you know, spoke about this a, a few times in terms of some of the stuff that we're doing at 11FS, is that you work all of your life to get to a senior position, to have the, you know, the credibility and the, you know, the, the, the leveling. And if you want to go and start a startup, you essentially throw all that away. And it's a, it's a big bet, right? You know, it's kind of you're, you're placing that bet on doing something, you know, to, to take something and make something from nothing mm -hmm. is a incredibly powerful, incredibly rewarding thing. And actually that in itself is, is as much, you know, reward as people, some, some people actually need in terms of doing these. You know, you find a, a lot of co-founders who have, have created something generally aren't taking salaries out of things until a lot further down the line until where they're at because actually the, 
the feeling of actually making something. And, you know, to the point where we've talked about before, you know, the if you've been at a big bank for long enough, the feel, the, you know, the need to just go and make something happen mm -hmm. is really powerful. You know, we're seeing senior people, we're seeing junior people, you know, coming out of banks and just wanting to go and do stuff. It's, it's amazing. I, I think it is. And, but I think also along those lines, if you are in that senior position, you have the power to change your organization. And some people don't want to do a startup. That's not where their values lie. They want to be able to go home at five o'clock and see their family and be able to go on their ski holiday. And they don't want to be skint. And that's okay. And there's this beautiful infrastructure that's created for corporates that is not leveraged to the extent that it can be. You know, and I've worked in the corporate space and I was very fortunate that I had a business leader who gave us autonomy. She's like, I cast the right set of characters, so now go forth and do your thing. And that needs to happen more often because you have the support. You have this system in place that can really enable you to thrive. It's just people aren't taking advantage of it because they're so fearful or there's this trepidation that we have to sustain the status quo, you know, in order to get my bonus um, or in order to fulfill this expectation that's very limited of my role when really the company and the shareholders need to reassess what expectations are of a business and of your senior leadership team. We come back to that word trust, which we've said a lot. Mm -hmm. And there is this sort of sense of uh, here is a company that is based on let's say fear, right? Or this idea that all of the structures are designed to protect the company from the employee's mistakes. And then there's the trusting company where all of the structures are designed with the expectation that those employees will do, do a good job and will do the best they can. And you get this weird um, conflict between recruitment and uh, employment contract. Recruitment is designed to find the person that we trust to do the job. And the employment contract is designed to protect us from the fact that you don't do the job. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's like day one, we don't trust you, <laughs> and it's not a great, it's not a great environment to 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 foster the sort of contributions that it seems like we're talking about. Although I wonder, and there's a question for for everyone else here: is it do do we actually want to to be innovating? Is that is that what, or is or are there organisations that are, that actually should just keep delivering? I feel like that's a huge question because one of the aspects is if you expect to just keep delivering, then in terms of the expectation of growth of the organization, I think that needs to be revisited because there's such a pressure to grow exp so exponentially year on year that the reality is, is that something's going to have to suffer somewhere. And it's not, it, usually it's the integrity of the people within the organization and missing the point of what really is the future of the organization. And also along the lines of when you talk about hiring, I feel like that's one of the biggest areas for disruption. Um, <laughs> because there's lots of companies that are, are trying to, to find kind of more automated ways to employ people. But I think still there's this very transactional relationship between pe putting people in seats. And for these organizations where there's a on average four-year turnover with the millennial generation, you really need to make it sexy and enticing to keep people. And sometimes that's taking risk, risks on individuals and really investing in them in a way in which those organizations currently are not. Or you need to create a paradigm or an attitude in which retention is not the primary measure. Yeah. So this idea that actually uh, 
you know, you come and join my company and the attraction, the reason why you come and join my company is because I'm going to help you leave it. Yeah. And I hope you go away a better person. Mm. And that your each job that you do, because that's what we think, isn't it? Like each job I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver value along the way. I'm going to get better so I can go and do something better. Well, what if the companies thought that too? One of my uh, ex-managers actually at one of the organizations I work for did tell me at one point that all the good people leave. And I think he meant it in a negative rather than a positive. But uh, maybe that's a good way to kind of wrap this up. So from the Rainmaking Summit, it sounds like you guys have covered some amazing topics. So we've gone through culture, we've gone through transformation, we've gone through what innovation departments should be doing, shouldn't be doing. Uh, and it sounds like a fantastic event. So Liz, when, when's the next one? Uh, we're planning it. So this is going to be a global event. It's going to travel wherever Rainmaking has a outpost, we will have a Rainmaking Summit. Sounds great. And where can people learn more about Rainmaking? Uh, from rainmaking.io, brand new website. Rainmaking, yeah, rainmaking.io. It's brand new. <laughs> really brand new. Yes. Jennifer, where can we learn more about your uh, your company? We, I have a new website that's launching imminently, so that will be fulltilt.com. And then uh, on LinkedIn, you can find me as well. And um, I need to up my game on Twitter, so don't follow me there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm verbose, yeah. so that, those characters are, are too limiting. <laughs> Nick, where can people learn more about right, startupbootcamp.org is for the Startup Bootcamp programs. Nick Leolio is on Twitter. Lovely. Um, Will, where can we learn more? Makersacademy.com, particularly for some of the stuff that I've been discussing, uh, blog.makersacademy.com. We, we share quite a lot of the stuff that we're experimenting with on our blog. Fantastic. So from the Raymaking Summit, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. To learn more about the team behind Fintech Insider, please visit 11fs.co.uk. That's all for now. Hold up. 